0: Good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us today at the Humanitarian and Disaster Relief panel. Um, my name is Sara Belligoni, and it's my pleasure to moderate this session in which Lieutenant Colonel Bukema will present her research title, Blood is the Price of Victory, Preparing the Military Blood Banking Community for Tomorrow's Fight. And I also thank Mr. Brian Hastings, the director of the Alabama Emergency Management for joining us as the other discussant of this panel. So I'm going to uh, introduce myself real quick. Um, I'm a PhD candidate um, in security studies at the University of Central Florida. I earned both my bachelor's degree and master's degree uh, from Università degli Studi Roma 3 in Italy, which is also my home country and Probably you can hear that from my accent. Um, And I also earn a certificate in global affairs from New York University. I'm a researcher and I served as a geopolitical analyst for think tanks, research and academic institutions, And I mainly uh, research on civil, military, humanitarian coordination, and disaster policy. I've published policy commentaries addressing these topics in the Middle East, East Africa, and Latin America. And I'm also currently a member of a working group investigating the impact of public policies of the COVID-19 pandemic here in the United States. Now, I want to introduce you all to our panel by, by mention, by mention a real world event. So we probably all know uh, what catastrophe, the earthquake in Haiti caused in 2010. Um, but we probably don't know uh, that years after the disaster, Haiti was still struggling with the recovery. And in 2015, the Haiti's National Blood Transfusion Center stopped working. Um, there was no chance to fix it right away. Uh, and certified blood products were becoming scarce. So the Asian Red Cross called upon the international community for help. Uh, The American Red Cross sent 1,000 units of blood within five days. And then as there was also no blood testing kits available, Italy and South Africa prepared to ship some supplies while the Dominican Red Cross worked hard to try to send those kits immediately. The lives that were saved thanks to this multilateral operation are countless. And the reason why I wanted to mention this real world event is because I want to invite you all to think about the importance of blood bank management while also how such management is important within both the military and civilian sphere. Now, we will talk about that a little bit more later Um, and we will address also how civil military coordination is important in crisis response. Now, I want to thank Luton-Colonel Bukema's research uh, because this panel can focus and discuss the importance of setting procedures for block bank management, especially within the military field, um, while also stressing the importance of addressing urgent issues, given the changing global environment and the high rates of interior blood waste. So it's my pleasure to leave the floor to Mr. Astings for introducing himself and then uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Bukema for introducing herself and then presenting her research.
1: Hey, thank you, Sarah. And um, on behalf of Governor Ivey and the the cabinet of Alabama, it's it's an honor and a privilege to be here, a part of this prestigious and uh, really important panel. And thank you to, the folks who have signed up to kind of listen to this discussion today so as sarah said i'm I'm director brian hastings and so i was appointed by governor ivy in september 2017 to be the director of alabama emergency management agency and who would have known that i would have come into this job during three historic seasons of disasters and hurricanes uh, living in coastal alabama it's interesting I didn't retire from the Air Force thinking that I would continue in public service, but it's something that I've always been drawn to. Uh, Entering into Alabama Emergency Management Agency the last three and a half years, and including COVID-19 have been historic for many reasons. One meaning that uh, we've gotten 10% of all our major disaster declarations in the year 2020 alone, and 13% of all our major disaster declarations since 1961, since I've joined Alabama Emergency Management. So you could get a sense that maybe my staff in Alabama are waiting for my resignation to end the uh, disaster trial that I have brought to Alabama. So it's been very, very, very challenging. And 2020 brought with it our third largest individual assistance disaster with Hurricane Sally. We actually uh, felt the impacts of three of the $22 billion disasters in 2020, which also smashed a record of uh, the cost and devastation of the number of billion-dollar disasters per year. And here we are still recovering from COVID-19. So a little bit about me and my background. I'm an academy grad from 1990. I've spent 27 years in the Air Force. I think and uh, speak a little bit differently than most people in this field. I am not an emergency manager by trade. I'm an A10 pilot and a teacher and a, an educator and a trainer. Uh, so my degree was in astrophysics, applied physics. My uh, my two masters. I've got a master's in aeronautical sciences from Embry Riddle. And then a, a Master of Arts in Military Sciences for National or Resourcing National Security Strategy, with a concentration in Strategy. And so, my last ten jobs, and why I'm really excited to be about uh, be a part of this panel and uh, here with Karen and Sarah, is that um, I've been a commander since 2007, uh, both in armistice and of combat organizations. Uh, I've been in. Germany, I've been in Korea, I was deployed to Afghanistan as the vice commander of 10,000 airmen during the height of Afghanistan operations, so I understand the risks that commanders are taking and the importance of the platinum minutes and golden hour in combat operations that allow us to get our injured veterans and contractors and just casualties of war Uh, back to some place to stabilize them and keep them alive. The system is just completely amazing. So I'm really excited about being here, uh, having a conversation with Karen to highlight her incredible research and the things that I've learned and hope we can share with uh, the folks who are tuning in today. So without further ado, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce Lieutenant Colonel Karen Bukuma.
2: Hey, thanks, Brian and Sarah. I appreciate the opportunity uh, to, to be here today and to talk about the um, research that I've done over the last year. Um, like <clears throat> mentioned, my name is Lieutenant Colonel Karen Bukema. I am a biomedical lab officer in the Air Force. I've um, been a part of the Air Force Medical Service for the past 18 years. Um, I recently, like two weeks ago, just graduated from Air War College and will be heading off to Lackland Air Force Base to take uh, another squadron command as the commander of the Diagnostics and Therapeutics Squadron, which of note is also the home of the largest blood donor center in the Department of Defense. So this research really was timely considering the the job that I'm going to next. Um, My background, I am also from the Chicago area. So my um, Alabama accent is missing as well. Um, But the Midwest one comes out every once in a while. Um, And I am a graduate of Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I have a degree in clinical laboratory science, um, and I'm also, my master's degree is in um, immunohematology from the George Washington University, Um, and I'm a graduate of the Armed Service Blood Bank Fellowship, um, which was at Walter Reed and uh, the National Institutes of Health. And so I um, have been a career Air Force lab officer with specifically a specialty in blood banking and transfusion medicine. Um, Like uh, Brian, I was in Afghanistan in kind of the height of a lot of the um, fighting that was happening there in 2010, uh, 2011. I managed the um, apheresis blood collection and emergency blood collection uh, processes in Kandahar, um, which was a very, very busy time uh, to be doing that at the NATO roll three hospital there with some of our partner countries. This past year in your work college has been uh, front and center and foremost kind of in my career professionally for the past 18 years. And is kind of something that while a lot of folks maybe don't think often about blood and how it gets there and, and how important it might be is kind of in the focus of my professional life uh, my entire time in the service. I like to start with a quote by Thomas Jefferson that um, kind of puts a, a perfect cap, I think, on my profession. And that is he once said, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants alike. Now, I'm sure when he said that, he was not talking about blood banking because it wasn't a thing back then. However, um, it does really um, perfectly capture how important blood is um, in the military setting and in military medicine. So recently, the past 20 years of fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq, one of the the biggest things that has come out of that from a a military medicine standpoint is that we currently have a 98% casualty survival rate, which means that if you are fortunate enough, if unfortunate enough to be injured, but fortunate enough to then be transported back to any type of theater care, um, the survival rates for those individuals are 98%, which is very astronomically high and pretty awesome, and I think a lot of military medics will pat themselves on the back, deservedly so, because of how awesome that number is. There's three main reasons for that. And one of the key reasons for that success rate is the robust and rapid availability of blood products very close to the point of injury. Brian mentioned the golden hour. And what that is, is from the time of injury, the one hour after the time that an injury, whether it's a blast injury or gunshot wound, occurs, to be able to get blood products into a patient within that first hour um, has proven itself to be uh, very key to the positive outcomes for that patient and for survivability. So um, the military blood making community, is, the organization that runs all of that just for background is called the Armed Service Blood Program. The Armed Service Blood Program has developed a very, especially over these past 20 years, a very robust and complex but very efficient process for getting blood where it needs to be in theater. Um, So we've done a great job. So the the question, I guess would be, what's the point of your research? What are you looking at? If everything's perfect, why did you research it? Well, I think the take home message, if if you don't really get anything else out of this um, 45 minute discussion is that um, blood is very, very difficult to produce safely. And effectively, it's not just like what you see on TV, you know, oh, just give them one egg and everything will be fine. There is a lot of complexity associated with creating a safe blood product. We do that. However, we also waste as a military medicine community, we waste a lot of blood, a lot. The numbers are staggering and I'll go into that in a little while. And while that's been sustainable for our current conflict, looking forward into the future and the kind of changing character of war and what near peer and peer competition looks like, that rate, the difficulty that it takes to make blood and the rate at which we waste it is potentially not going to be sustainable. What are the trends that are emerging that are going to make it even harder and how do we move forward strategically as an armed service blood program to transition now, so it's not too late 10 years from now when we find ourselves in um, a peer competition that we're trying to scramble and fix it so that we can maintain that 98% survivability rate that now, while it's a great accomplishment is also kind of become the standard and become the expectation. So how do we do that? So. The five key emerging challenges that you see in trends that are are happening, I'm going to combine the first two, but one, they are the decrease in blood donations. People just don't donate blood at the same level and at the same um, consistency that they used to, and all the trends indicate that. And the second thing that combines with that is as global diseases are on the rise um, and the safety expectations of blood products are on the rise, fewer and fewer people are even eligible to donate blood. And the complexity of making a product and the testing required, especially in the United States, to have what's considered a safe blood product is so complex, only estimated maybe 38% of people in the country can donate blood anyway. And of that 38%, only 10% actually do. So you have a really hard time just getting people to donate blood. And the third um, thing is the decline and the decrease of professional laboratory staff. The clinical lab science career field is one that has been slowly diminishing um, over the years for multiple reasons. Um, And of that, and what I really want to highlight through my research is in the military itself, we have lab officers, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, we all do. That's my AFSC. Um, The ability to do blood bank operations, even amongst the lab officers in the military, in the comfort level, in the um, Training is very minimal. So a survey was done in 2020 of Air Force lab officers. It's just the end of last year of Air Force lab officers and less than 7% of them had any experience at all doing blood bank operations Um, and over 85% said they felt completely dissatisfied and uncomfortable with the training that they have received if they were put in a position where they would need to run, manage and lead emergency blood bank operations. And these are the people responsible for doing it. So that highlights a huge problem that needs to start getting addressed now. Um, Fourth, and I kind of mentioned this already, but near-peer power competition is gonna create a limited and restricted access to the battle space. We can have a very robust logistical resupply capability in Afghanistan, in Iraq, where we've enjoyed pretty much open access to areas where we need to go. If we were to get into war with a, a peer, that access wouldn't be there to the same level as we've had. And we wouldn't always be able to have the comfort level that, oh, the the helicopters are coming with fresh blood because they have access to to us. That won't be the case necessarily in a war with, let's say, China or Russia. And finally, and this is kind of the capstone of all of this, our current in theater blood product wastage rates is complex and as hard as it is to create all that blood. Once we get it in theater right now, depending on the blood product, the type of blood product we're talking about, um, 2020, we we wasted or pretty much destroyed 90% of the products that we put in theater and 90 or 97%, like I said, depending on the, the blood product we're talking about. Those rates are astronomically high. And I think to a lay person, it almost seems like mind-blowingly horrible. I will tell you as a subject matter expert, it's not quite that bad, but they are too high. They're they're too high. They're not sustainable um, moving forward. You are gonna have really, really high wastage rates. You need to have those uh, just in order to provide the safety net that that we need. Um, But those rates are just too high. So considering all those challenges and all the things, how hard it is to get blood where it needs good, safe blood, where it needs to be, um, those wasted rates, even ethically, are not really sustainable. So how do we move forward? And how do we start to prepare? My um, four recommendations for this, the first one, um, I'm not gonna lie, I stole this from our nuclear deterrence theory, um, is we need to develop a triad of blood products, if you will, that we keep um, in theater and, I'm not going to get into too many of the specifics because I don't want to get too clinical, but those three things would be frozen blood products, low tire O whole blood, and then a robust in theater walking blood bank program. And just a quick summary of all those things, what that provides is the ability to create the product that you need when you need it, as opposed to think of blood like milk. And if you have 50 gallons of milk on the shelf, but you only drink two, it expires and it goes away that's the same type of idea. But if you have frozen blood, low tire whole blood and the ability to collect blood in theater, you're not gonna be expiring nearly as much as if you just have fresh blood waiting there and then doesn't get used. So that's the first point. The second one, in order to do that and to have that triad successfully um, in place, we need lab professionals, laboratory officers who are trained and competent. And so in that, the Defense Health Agency through the clinical lab office there needs to develop a very robust tri-service laboratory officer training so that that 85% of folks who say, I am completely uncomfortable doing this, even though it's one of my primary jobs, um, we can start to change that trend. And obviously, that needs to happen sooner rather than later, start that training, because that's not going to be fixed overnight with that huge group of individuals. The third, and I think potentially the most exciting, is the Defense Health Agency needs to invest in more research and development associated with um, blood products, there or transfusion medicine. Um, one of the things that is really exciting, but really no research has been done, is the potential of utilizing the space force to. You know, we talk about the inability to to um, have freedom of movement in the battlefield in potential war with China or something like that, or a more peer adversary, utilizing the Space Force to store blood products in space, um, to transport blood products through space um, would be unbelievably uh, awesome, as far as creating the logistic the logistical capabilities that it would allow. However, there's been no research done on what storage the storage lesion of blood products would be if they've been stored in outer space. And there's that has to be done in order to again ensure the safety and effect, efficacy of those blood products. Um, and another perfect example would be um, viable blood substitutes. I mean, that is something that does not exist. And to continue research into that, Um, process and procedure or potential. And then the third research type thing that I mentioned in uh, my paper will be talking about pathogen inactivation technology. So there are transfusion transmitted diseases, diseases that can be transmitted to folks through blood products, the ability to create some type of technology that would inactivate pathogens in blood so that I could transfuse you a unit of blood that potentially had malaria in it, but we killed all those parasites through, whether it's some type of UV light technology or um, whatever the case may be, to make it so that you wouldn't have to worry about that uh, potential pathogen, transfusion transmitted disease, would be astronomical in helping with the safety of the blood products that we have. And then finally, the last um, recommendation that I have would be to look at The Air Force uh, Medical Service has a program of global health engagements where we, through humanitarian efforts, um, kind of some of the things that Sarah mentioned, we partner with nations to build bridges and build relationships. Um, Looking specifically at those global health engagements from a transfusion medicine standpoint to countries, and I specifically mentioned the Philippines and Thailand, countries around the South China Sea area, places where potential conflict would happen that we currently have uh, defense, mutual defense treaties and alliances with. um, If for example, we were in some type of conflict in the South China Sea area, and we had an inability to get blood products, American blood products into that region. Currently, the blood products produced in like the Philippines and Thailand, there's some safety concerns there. But if we invested in the Philippine blood program, the Thai blood program, and we're able to develop and create uh, more safe and effective practices there, then we could rely on them as partners to potentially be a source of blood for our service members as well. So that was kind of a very, very quick summary of my year long research project. Um, I will say um, kind of the bottom line, our current processes work great. We have created a wonderful um, program that has saved countless thousands and thousands of lives of injured service members. However, um, there's a, a quote by um, General Dohey that uh, General Brown always likes to say about victory smiling upon those who anticipate Um, the change in the character of war, not upon those who wait until the change happens. Um, So we can't wait. We need to start anticipating what the change of war is gonna look like and start putting those actions in place now so that 10 years from now we're ready to go and we can keep saving lives.
0: Thank you so much for, for this presentation. I think it's just great that you are not only dedicating Time um, to these specific studies, but your your career and um, I really I really appreciate that as someone that uh, you know is more on the theoretical research side because I always um, as I always say I try to um, I would say understand the point of view of who is in the field. I I really wanna um, again you know um, just. Catch on what you what you said when you were mentioning the importance of uh, working with uh, you know uh, civilians with uh, I would say also local authorities of countries where potentially uh, the military can be can be deployed. Um, I think that what I want also the audience to do here is to think about what we learn from this research um, and also uh, how we can some, somehow translate those policy recommendation to a more overall blood bank management, so for the medical community overall. Um, for instance, when civilians or militaries or even civilians and militaries together intervene in post-disaster or post-conflict uh, conflict settings, uh, medical teams face several challenges. Um, they can range from clinical challenges, uh, ensuring that the blood products are uh, meeting the standards and also logistics challenges, so those related to uh, supply chain uh, kind of kind of issues. And uh, you know, when involved in international operations, um, civilians and militaries are often required to work together, and and doing so also with a third uh, actor that are the local authorities. Um, There are, therefore, uh, context-specific issues, I would say, uh, that need to to be considered when it comes to the blood bank management. Um, For instance, the blood products uh, uh, are present in the field uh, and they are made available for only the militaries or also the civilians, depending on the context, and then also based on the state capacity of the uh, the country where we are uh, working within, then. Uh, what the kind of, you know, healthcare system we are working within. Is it a healthcare system that can support us or is an a healthcare system that we have to support? And what happens also um, with the requirements of the blood products, especially when, um, for instance, military forces can uh, somehow, uh, you know, have to intervene in disaster um, settings. And so these blood products might be okay for the... Uh, let's say the case of the United States, the FDA standards, but what about standards that might come into play in the field? So I think that crisis response plans specifically for the blood bank management um, needs to consider blood product requirements, blood product types, uh, plans for clinical and medical personal mobilization, options for the transportation and storage. And this makes the whole picture very complex. Uh, but I think we are in a, in a good um. In, 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 I would say uh, that the military is is doing a great job in setting, uh, you know, what's what we have now, but what we need to do uh, better, or what are the directions uh, for uh, doing that better. And I think that the you know um, the overall medical community can learn from that. So I would say that. Um, what I would like to to discuss a little bit more is what can uh, the military and civilian actors can learn each other, uh, what eventually the civilian uh, uh, sphere can learn from what the militaries are are doing, um, and especially how the two can better coordinate the blood bank management when operating in a third country and especially when the third country as authorities somehow uh, are involved in, these, in this management. I think it's, it's important to address these questions based on the global environment in which we are right now, uh, in which the number of disasters are uh, seeing militaries more and more involved, and also uh, are seeing more and more coordination between civilians and militaries. So I would like to leave the floor um, and open a little bit uh, the discussion on, on these topics.
2: Sure, Sarah. You bring up some some outstanding points, and I think one of the key ways the civilian sector, especially in the United States, and the military sector can work together is through training. Um, like I mentioned, looking at military lab officers and their comfort level with managing uh, blood banking and managing uh, emergency blood bank operations is very minimal. Why? Is because as officers, we're we're kind of expected to be a jack of all trades and in the laboratory career field you're not focusing all of your very few people you know myself excluded i suppose and there's a few folks like me but very few of us focus our entire careers specifically on blood making and on transfusion medicine they're they're focusing on many many other things and so because of that there are potentials with the civilian sector, whether it's the Red Cross, American blood systems, other, are civilian, um, the FDA itself, um, the American Association of Blood Banks, like uh, various regulatory agencies where, starting something like an education with industry fellowship for our lab officers to go and do things there and to get the training with the people who do it 24 seven 365 days a year um, would be just invaluable to helping them be ready and comfortable with having to lead in this situation, whether it's in a deployed environment or an emergency situation that would happen here in the United States. So I think that's a a clear one. And I also think usually the civilian sectors, whether again, it's the Red Cross or whoever, is. Always very willing to have that partnership. There's usually not a lot of hesitancy because you're talking about trained, competent folks. We do it with um, trauma surgeons all the time. Air Force Medicine um, partner with civilian hospitals and institutions. They get free labor, they get free trauma surgery labor, and our surgeons are able to um, hone, sharpen, and keep their skills good to go. It would be the exact same thing. Um, And I think that's a a key way that we could partner together. I also think. inviting some of the regulatory agencies to see some of the complexities associated with doing transfusion medicine in the middle of a battlefield so they can start to understand the challenges that we're juggling as we're trying to maintain safe products and then have those experts help us come up with ideas of how to do this safer, how to do it more efficiently. Um, there's tons of room for collaboration, I, I think, in that environment. And then finally, to your point about um, other countries and, and partnering with them, there that is a, a that is a whole nother panel discussion, I think, at, to a certain level. Um, I When I was in Afghanistan, I had the opportunity to work with the Afghan Minister of Health, and we actually had a, a blood drive for a women and children's hospital in Kabul. Um, and it was outstanding. And one of the things he told me was, um, you know, the <laughs> the entire budget for the entire Afghan Ministry of Health, um, probably about the same as the budget for like a really big high school in New York City. You know what I mean? Like, and it's for a whole country. And so you look at the challenges associated with um, them trying to do to medicine um, and just transfusion medicine in and of itself is very complex. And how can we partner with them better? Uh, one of the questions I've been asked multiple times is, hey, why don't we give our blood before it expires to other countries you know why why are we letting all this blood expire on the shelf why aren't we giving it to other countries um and i think that's something that needs to be explored but i will just caution that that's not as easy to do as it is to say for many reasons whether it's um standards in those other countries religious reason religious aspects in those other countries um also just kind of, well, when do we give it? When it has five days left, when it has two days left? And what do we, what standard do we wanna set as well? But I think there's potential there and it's something that needs to be explored um, more and more.
1: The more we talk, the more I learn about this. Uh, as a public servant, I like to say where I am, I build community and um, our number one priority in operations is to save lives and then mitigate suffering. And so, uh, it emergency management and resilience at large is a collection, it's a collective, it's the power of people, individuals, communities, families, you know, responding to, caring for and recovering from disasters. And so social cohesion um, is a leading indicator in all disasters of not only surviving, but thriving. So one thing that I hear over and over again in your themes are, you know, really the U.S. blood system is the logistics of life. It is the logistics of life. Without it, there is no life. In your paper, you state, in order to ensure the blood is always available, regardless of logistical resupply capabilities, which you're kind of talking about right now, the third pillar of the theater blood supply, a robust walking blood bank, must be implemented DOD-wide. However, you also mentioned, and this is something we're seeing right now in COVID, in emergency uh, operations, uh, that the younger generations don't donate blood at the same rate as older generations. And uh, while only 38% of the population is eligible, only 10% donate. So recently I was inspired by my, my son to give. So I've been given every couple months and I'm on my six and I got one more Power Red and I'll be at a gallon donation. But... That is what I've chosen to do um, as a leader in Alabama for the national emergency for COVID-19. And, and actually, I think I con- uh, contracted uh, a COVID during my fifth donation and brought it into my family. Um, but then I went and donated again in May. Um, so how would you encourage and develop the required spirit of volunteerism, the, the personal courage, the risk acceptance, or as you had mentioned, the uh, the altruistic human beings to create normal blood donations or normalize just giving blood and emergency donations into the younger generation, especially, specifically the military, to keep our US blood system, but really what we're talking about here, the military blood system uh, healthy because it is the logistics of life. And you know, would you think about normalizing it in some of our exercises or completion of training and education programs just to make it a habit of what we do for each other and increase that social cohesion inside the military.
2: Absolutely. And Brian, you bring up a great point um, as far as within the military itself, making it a almost a habit or that sense of almost like a sense of obligation that we feel to do that. I will say, um, The Air Force has, the the Department of Defense in total has about 20 blood donor centers at various military installations. The Air Force only has three, but the three that the Air Force has, one of them, the one at Lackland Air Force Base, is the biggest donor center in the Department of Defense by far. And the reason why it's so huge is because donating blood is a big part of going through basic training. When you're in basic training, again, it's completely voluntary, but you're offered the opportunity to donate blood. And for the folks listening, if you've ever been through any type of, or seen a movie, when you're in basic training and someone offers you, hey, you can go sit on this comfy chair for 20 minutes and nobody's gonna yell at you and you can eat cookies and drink juice. Most people in basic training are like, absolutely, I'm gonna go do that. Even if they're afraid of needles, it's worth it just for the Oreos and the juice that you get to have and the break from your, your drill instructors, right? So we do that now, we, we start it early. Um, the other larger donor center that we have is at Keesler, which is again, another uh, training base with a huge training population. Um, and so we're, we're starting that thought process early in folks. And, and I will say also in theater, when the need for emergency whole blood collections come up, there is never a problem finding donors to donate blood. So I think within the military community itself, when the urgency is there and the need is there, everybody, I mean, I had guys, I had to say, listen, you cannot donate blood cause you're not the right blood type. And they were mad at me. And I'm like, there's nothing I can do. I'm sorry, it's, you're the wrong blood type, but they want to so bad take care of their injured colleagues. Um, so there's a, an understanding there. I would say, as a community as a whole, I think, uh, you know, in America, let's just say millennials, because that's who we like to talk about. Um, sometimes they get this bad rap of, you know, hey, they're not as into to altruistic type things. There was a report that came out in the New York Times a little while ago that said, actually, millennials are very ultra like into volunteerism and that younger generation really wants to Um, it's very important to them um, giving back and and volunteering and helping in the community I think the problem with the blood banking industry and with like that it hasn't marketed itself well Um, and the importance and the significance of it everyone just kind of assumes the blood's going to be there and if you really sit down and talk to someone, it's like, well, where do you think it came from? It's not like drugs. We didn't make it and you know, the pharmaceutical companies don't make it. Somebody had to go donate blood and that blood mobile in the parking lot at the grocery store is actually doing something very important. And I don't know, I'd have to research this more, how many Americans really understand that and really see that, hey, Without you doing this, we don't have any blood, Um, you know, people think you don't get paid to donate blood. It's free. So those people who go, you know, college students who donate plasma and they get paid. That's not used um, For human transfusion that's used to make reagents and things like that blood that's transfused to human beings in our country is all voluntarily donated Um, And so explaining that and making people aware of that. I don't think people know. And I mean, that would just kind of be my guess. I'd have to do a little bit more research into that, but that's kind of where I'm at with, hope that answers your question a little bit.
1: It does. And one last thing I'd say, and then I'm gonna hand it back over to ladies and Sarah and Karen, you can bring us home. But this app, this is a um, American Red Cross app. So every time you donate blood, it tells you that it was, it was uh, kept someplace, it was tested. They'll keep it local because when you donate local, they incentivize local cohesion. And then all my blood so far has gone over to Georgia, uh, which is fine also. But it also tells you the hospital goes to and that it's being used. So you're actually connected with the lives that you're saving. And maybe the military can go down that path, too. So you get this sense of, oh, my God, this really is working now. Our, our waste rate sometimes in combat is a little higher, but still the connection with another human is just really, really powerful. So thank you, Karen. I appreciate that.
2: Absolutely. Thanks, Brian. Sure. So I think um, the civilian community, if, when it comes to natural disaster response and things like that, there's a lot to be learned from the military um, program and the military sector in that the military is inherently flexible in what we do, we have to be flexible, right? Flexibility is the key to air power. Well. It, and thinking outside the box thinking that comes with just the military in general, but definitely comes with military medicine. There were times in Afghanistan, I didn't have any of the supplies that I needed, or they were all expired. And I needed to figure out how to still create this safe product, right? Um, In the civilian sector in the United States, even if there's a big earthquake or, you know, a mass shooting or things like that, that happen that require a lot of blood products, we tend to be very altruistic in those times. Everyone rushes to donate blood because they wanna do something, they wanna help. Um, I think a good way to look at it is how do we take that you know, um, immediate response or that immediate desire to, to help and do altruistic things to help in this one particular situation and try to create a more longer lasting um, uh, altruistic mindset within, within folks because I mean, if you look at it, a hundred people can go donate blood after a mass shooting and they might only need 20 units of blood. The rest of that blood's potentially gonna be wasted. Cause again, it's only good for 42 days. And so if you have this huge amount of blood that comes in for one event and it's not needed, um, that's unfortunate, right? You want instead, hey, come back in three weeks and donate because we're gonna need it for cancer patients or moms having babies, whatever the case may be. Um, I think that's one one way. Um, another thing though, is just back to that flexibility mindset that the military has and looking at, hey, I don't have what I need. You know, there's been an earthquake or there's been a tornado. Um, I don't have what I need. How do I function? How do I continue moving forward? The military blood banking community is a wonderful resource as far as ideas and training for how to deal with those actions because it's what we live and breathe all the time when we're deployed and in those type of environments. So, again, I just think there's a lot of mutual um, training that can happen um, back and forth. That would be very helpful for both entities.
0: Thank you. And I see Brian uh, just follow up, like, can the US military blood bank use for civilian in disaster relief?
2: So it it definitely could. Especially the blood that's collected in the United States. So, you know, sometimes for emergent needs, we'll have to collect blood in Afghanistan or blood in Iraq, that stuff is not FDA approved. So no, that would not be used in the United States. But every military blood donor center is an FDA approved licensed donor center, the blood products that are collected at those donor centers are the equivalent and just as safe and good and tested the same as anything collected from the Red Cross or American Blood Centers, any of those. So it could, um, if need be. I I know there are times we have huge blood drives at like the Air Force Academy, for example, a couple times a year. And there will be times where we collect just massive amounts of blood and we don't need it all to meet our quotas for overseas. We will give those to to the civilian community because again, ethically and morally to just let that blood go to waste would be just horrific so we will then donate that or give it once our quotas that what we need for theater usage
0: has been you know filled we'll donate that to the civilian sectors thank you so much we are at the end of our panel so i want to thank Karen and Brian again for this awesome discussion and the Earl University and MGM works for the support and logistics. Um, And thank you so much for uh, attending, everyone. Uh, We hope that you all enjoy it and you have learned something uh, about the Blanc Bank management. And uh, we definitely look forward to staying in touch if anyone wants. And again, thank you so much uh, everyone for, for attending today.